All right, I'm Jack Kropp, and this is Sharing Recovery Radio. We'd like to welcome all our listeners today. We're here to tell you that there is recovery, and recovery is possible from addiction. And We like to have people come on this show and, and, and talk about the fact they have they have identified that they have a problem, and they've decided to change their lives, and they work at recovering. If you're listening to this show and you want to call in and ask questions, 570-883-0098. If you're listening to the show and you have a problem and you want help, call me after the show, 570-881-5825. So we've often talked on this show about the stigma of addiction, and people develop a concept, an idea, of, of, of what a person in addiction looks like. You know, everybody thinks that people in addiction are those people under the bridge or the people homeless on the street. Today's show is about a young woman who was none of that. A young woman who came from an amazing family who still has an amazing family. A woman, young woman that had an amazing career but somehow found herself in addiction. Break the stigma of addiction. Talk about what goes on in your family. Talk about what goes on in your life because you're not alone. Just because you think you, you're the only CPA or the only doctor or the only nurse that's suffering, you're not, you're not unique and you're not alone. There are professionals, just like Nadine is, that, are, that have suffered with addiction and who have surrendered to recovery. Today our guest is Nadine G. Nadine is a young woman that, that I met a couple of years ago in recovery. I've known her family forever. I, I mean, I knew her father way back when. I mean, all the way back in the 70s, I met her father. And, and she's just a wonderful example of what recovery is today. And when I tell you she works hard at recovery, she works hard at helping others, she works hard at, at being a young professional in recovery. And that's what we have today with us. Welcome, Nadine. I'm glad you're here with us. Thanks, Jack. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, you won't be in a little while after I put you on the spot <laughs> a couple of times. But. So, Nadine, um, as I said, you are a professional. You work in the medical field. And, and you are in recovery, right? That's correct. I've been in the medical industry for about 12 years now. Um, since I graduated college. Cool. Now, Nadine, uh, growing up, you, you grew up in the Back Mountain, right? Yep. All right. And you had a, a relatively normal life? I did. Um, I had a wonderful childhood growing up. I was always in active in sports, uh, and I came from a loving, supportive family. Um, so I had a very stable upbringing within my family. So... Your upbringing was stable and it was all normal. You graduated from high school. Did you start using before you got out of high school, Nadine? Um, I think I started experimenting in high school a little bit, but, you know, with everybody else, I think that was kind of normal. Um, and I just partied with everybody else uh, at thinking it was normal because it was at that age. All right, so everybody, everybody in high school today believes that drinking, smoking pot, doing some other things is perfectly normal behavior. Some of those people move on. They go on with their lives and it never becomes an issue. For a person, an addict, somebody like me or you, we don't move away from that, that we have to uh, 
addiction takes over, whether it's quickly or slowly. I started to drink when I was eight years old. You know, I didn't come to recovery until I was 41 or 42 years old, I guess 42 years old. So addiction takes over. Tell us about the progression of, of your life and how did you end up in addiction? <clears throat> So after high school, I went on to, uh, I, I went to King's College and worked full time while I was at school. Um, I was always active in sports. I noticed when I was um, working full time and going to school full time, the, you know, working out kind of fell to the wayside and working took precedent. I worked in a restaurant, in an up and coming restaurant. Uh, back in the day and it was a nightlife scene too and I was really attracted to it and you know I was there I was making money um, I was with people that enjoyed partying too and uh, uh, it was working with my schedule so um, I enjoyed it so you got in this restaurant lifestyle and you went from just being recreational to maybe it became more often is that what you're saying that the drinking and and whatever else you were doing became more became just more common maybe yeah i think um throughout college again it was a party scene um but i took it a little bit further because after work you know we would all get together and and party you know throughout work after work and it was just the kind of crowd that i started to gravitate towards um you know, after after college, I I decided to get a big girl job, and I worked for a pharmaceutical company up in Scranton. Wait a minute, you fast forwarded there. All of a sudden, you were graduated <laughs> from college. How addiction during college wasn't an issue. You it, were it was manageable, so it did not progress until after college for me. But when you say manageable, you were drinking all the time. You were were you doing drugs in college? Yes, I was. But it was manageable. But it was manageable. Okay. So because we, for me at that time, I thought you know working full time, going to school full time, and then the break for me was to party. You know, I I I deserve that break because I work hard and I go to school full time. So I need an outlet to release myself. So that was that was it. All right. So like in my case. I was running a landscaping company and I drank every day and I thought everything was okay. And what I, the point I'm making is in your mind, while you were in college and you were doing this, everything was okay. You didn't see an issue with it. Not at all. I didn't see an issue with my drinking as it progressed over the years. But in reality, it's not a real healthy situation. And probably the people that are going to do best in life weren't doing what you and I were doing, were they? Right, right, probably not. Okay, so <laughs> you you progressed and you went through college. You, did you graduate from college? I did graduate from college, yes. And I after college, you know, I, I had this career and I really wanted to make a name for myself. And the partying actually did slow down for about a year or two with me. Um, and then it picked up, and when it picked up, it really picked up full steam ahead. All right, so uh, for a year or two after college, you've taken a break or slowed down or just now you're just like a normal young professional. Right. But but that that was in you. Now we know that that scratch on your chip 
And, you know, some days I call it a scratch on the chip. Some days I call it a black hole. But addicts have something they're missing. There's something wrong. Did, did you feel like you didn't fit in with other people? Did you feel any of the anxieties I hear other addicts talk about, Nadine? Um, for me, I didn't. It's not that I didn't fit in. It was more or less um, I enjoyed the way that it made me feel. Um, it was like a, an escape from life, um, an escape from all the hard work that I do. I felt like I deserved it, like I earned it because I worked so hard to get here. So, you know, and growing up, that's what I saw. People, you know, especially when I was working in a restaurant, I would see people that I know work all day, every day, and then they'd come in and they'd let loose. So, yeah, to me, it was normal at that point. You see, in, in my case, I've heard so many people in recovery say they, they didn't fit in. They didn't, they felt unusual. They felt uncomfortable. I never felt that way. Mm -hmm. I never had those feelings of, of, of inadequacy. I never had the feelings that people were doing better than me. I actually had the feeling that everybody wanted to be me. I had the feeling that I was the life of the party and that when I walked in the door, the music stopped, people clapped, and now we can get really started. <laughs> you know, and, and what I didn't find out until later on is that they're, they're, they're just crazy thoughts. But Jack, that, they still clap when you walk in the door now, <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> well, uh, you know, Tom R. does. You know, yes. if you're listening, Tom, I, I want you to know we got in a shout-out to you, right? So when I walk in, Tom R. does, does clap. Yes, he but does. But I clap for him, too. <laughs> so, all right, so now you've um, you've said that after a couple years, something changed again, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I was living on my own, and uh, this was my a new job had brought me down to the Lehigh Valley area. And, you know, um, surgery and a car accident, um, were two incidences in my life that occurred. And I think, honestly, um, this is the pain pills, where the pain pills kicked in. Um, I was prescribed pain medicine, and from there on in, I just kind of kept going back to the physician, and that's really when my disease progressed for me is from the pain pill addiction. All right, let's hold that thought. We're going to take a break now to s thank some of the people that support us, and we'll be right back. All right, here we are. We're coming back now. And um, as I said when we started, if you have questions for Nadine or I, call in 570-883-0098. If you want to talk to me personally, you want help for yourself, a loved one, after the show's over, 570-881-5825. Call me, text me. I'll answer any question you have. I'll do anything I can to help anyone listening or anybody out there. So what we're talking about today is, is that the face of addiction is not always that, that stereotype person that, that we have in our minds. And, you know, when I was a kid, I thought an alcoholic had a brown bag and was standing on the corner in, the, in a Pee Wee Herman trench coat. And um, it's not. And, you know, Nadine is 180 degrees opposite what we would think of when we think of a person that's in addiction. I mean, Nadine grew up in a wonderful family, college education, you know, a professional working in the medical field. But addiction caught her, too. And just before the break, Nadine, you said that you were in a car accident. And, um, and that's when things changed. What happened, Nadine? 
Um, I was in a car accident and had surgery in addition to that. Um, and not because of, I had elective surgery done as well. And that I was prescribed pain medicine and, you know, just out of being a patient, you know, they scheduled me to go back to the doctor's office, you know, in 30 days and you do that and you follow up and I was simply being a good, diligent patient. And then, you know, somewhere something changed where, you know, I, I started taking the medication more often than prescribed. All right, now, let me stop right there because for the people that are listening that don't understand this process, you had an accident, you had some surgery, and as a result of that, a doctor wrote you a prescription. Yes. For something, Oxycontin, Vicodin, yep. something. Yep. All right. And it says take three a day or take three as needed, whatever it says on that prescription. Mm hmm and come back in 30 days. Yep. So you go back in 30 days and they give you another prescription is what you're telling us. Right. And that that's that's how the cycle begins. I mean, 30 days, 30 days, 30 days. Yes. And if you go back to the doctor and say, I'm in pain, you're going to get another prescription, right? Right. And then at some point, instead of three a day, you're taking six a day. Mm -hmm. All right. So how did that happen? Um, I think just slowly over time. And I don't, you know, I, I'm not one that fully blames. I, I don't blame the physician, you know. Oh, no, I, I'm not trying to blame no, any doctor. No, I know. Because there are people that need pain medication. Absolutely, yep. There are, there are, Oxycontin was developed as a pain medication for cancer. Mm -hmm. There are people that need Oxycontin. There are people that need Vicodin. And there are people that take it properly. Mm -hmm. If you have the scratch on your chip, like you and I have, like my daughter has, like other people we know have, then you lose control of that. You lose control. You can't take it. You can't take that medication properly, right? Right, right. And I think for me, too, you know, being always in, you know, entrenched in the party scene, uh, this was another way to, um, you know, get my hands on something, too. So, you know, at that time, it was, it was still fun for me until it started to not become fun. And then it became... There was somewhere, somehow, along the lines, I crossed a line and started taking prescription, the prescription more than prescribed. Um, so that would run out before the end of the month. All right. So you're now, you're in pain from whatever, for other reasons, and you're getting these prescriptions and you're taking the medication and now you're eating them faster than the prescription. Mm -hmm. But Nadine, are you going to work? Yes. Are you are you living what appears to be a normal life? Yes. I mean, are you interacting with people and everything your family thinks everything is normal at this point? Or I actually went back to school to get my master's degree. I got an MBA while on the prescriptions. And I also really was actually the highlight of my career. I ended up finishing in the top 5% of the country for uh, sales reps back to back and you know if i'm being honest i thought i needed them to succeed at that point you know it was i thought they were helping me i thought that's what i needed i thought that's why i was winning well you know just a, a little side story here um my daughter uh, carly was going to the university of scranton and she was enrolled in a master's degree program and she was a straight a student in this in I guess it was forensic psychology or uh, maybe an addiction uh, program for to working on a master's degree. And she was high every day. And, and I, I couldn't 
that was before she came to recovery. And I said, when I found out that she was in working this program of at Scranton and hi, I said, how can you do this? She said, it makes it easier. Mm -hmm. And I said, what? She said, with an addict, it just makes it easier, you, you know, to um, perform when you're comfortable. So the drugs made you feel okay and you were able to perform. Is that... They, I thought they that's what was... They made me feel unstoppable. And being that I was winning, I was the top rep in the nation, I thought they were required to continue that level of, you know, uh, high level of... Everything, achieved. everything that I was doing in everything life. Everything you did, you achieved that. Right. You know, we have. A, I had a friend that was on this show, and she said, you know, when she was taking drugs, she thought she was superwoman. You know, she could just do anything when you're what? high. Not, nothing seems unusual. Nothing seems unattainable when you're high. And that's where you're at is what you were saying. That's exactly where I was at, yes. All right, but at some point... Now you're, you're doing fine. Your family has no clue. You're moving along. And... Mm -hmm. and um, because I know your story, I know you bought a house in Allentown, and everything was fine, right? Yep, everything was fine. Um, I was dating a, a, a gentleman. He moved in, and, you know, that's really when things took off in terms of the addiction because we're both using pretty heavily. And, you know, it was hard when, when you're living with somebody, it's hard for one person to get clean and sober when the other one doesn't want to get clean and sober that day. So it was just an ongoing vicious cycle for, for a couple of years. And the pain really started to get to me. So the guy you were living with was also using. Yes. That, that's, so you were enabling each other. You were just sitting there and but did he work, Nadine? I'm just curious. Did, did he have, like, what appeared to be a normal life, too, or was he just mooching off you? Um, <laughs> I think mooching's a good word. Yeah, I, I had the feeling that, that he was taking advantage of you and, yeah. and your hard work. Uh, yeah. You go to work, get the prescriptions, and we'll both do the drugs, right. right? Yeah, that's pretty much how it went down. All right, so mm -hmm. at some point, you look in the mirror and say to yourself, who is that? Is that is that where this came about, or did somebody... How did, how did you end up being pushed to the breaking point? Um, actually, there were two moments. Number one, it was that moment in the mirror that I looked in the mirror. I was at my house in Lehigh Valley, and I had a moment where I just was, you know, I was 25 pounds lighter than I am today. And I just was, my face was just completely emaciated. I was a corpse, a walking corpse. I didn't know who I was. Um, I was just completely broken spiritually, mentally, physically. And I did, I was, I was stuck. So that was the first moment. And, um, the second moment that really started my journey into recovery, uh, is my brother had approached me. He actually asked me to go for coffee, and he knows I don't drink coffee. So I knew something was up here. Um, but it was easy for me to hide my addiction from my family because I was living in the Lehigh Valley. So, and you know, your family still lived in the back mountain. Right. So I didn't, you know, I would be too busy to come in for functions, you know, or I'd come up with some sort of excuse as to why I couldn't come back home. Um, but my brother had approached me, 
and he out said, of. I'd like to talk to you about something. Yes, and, and Nadine, you know, when somebody says I want to talk to you about something, they're not, they're not, they don't want to give you a check. No, I mean, I've learned that over the years. When somebody says, "Hey, can we sit down? We need to talk for a minute." Right. The next thing they say is, "Well, here's that check I wanted to give you. Or here's that trip I wanted to give you." Well, yeah. somebody says, "I need to talk to you." There's something wrong. Yes, yes. So I knew it was. It had to do with either the the guy that I was, you know, that was in and out of my life or he was going to ask me about my addiction and that's exactly what he did i've been carrying around this addiction for several years on my own shoulders and you know on the outside i looked great because i was able to be successful and you know what was looked from the outside like a normal life um so nobody I, I feel like i was able to hide it a little bit better but when my brother had approached me instantly i felt some sort of relief i felt like there was a weight lifted off my shoulders because somebody else knew and i didn't have to carry around this facade like everything's okay and i'm okay and um there was a little bit of relief when somebody actually approached me about it um, yeah, that's because the, I walked into recovery off the street. Mm -hmm. The people around me, you know, knew I was a drunk. I actually knew I was a drunk, but I didn't care because I, I didn't think there was anything wrong with being a drunk. I mean, growing up, you know, people would say to me at parties and my, and my parents and stuff, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, a town drunk. You know, I, that's what I, that's what I strived for. And I achieved it. Yeah. I mean, and I was good at it. Um, but that first time I walked into a recovery meeting. And there was a man there named Jimmy. He was chairing this meeting. And he looked around and says, is there anybody new? And I didn't know the protocol. I didn't understand what to say or how to say it. So I said, I'm Jack. I'm an alcoholic. I felt a relief. And I'm not saying that life turned into Cadillacs and caviar after that. But, I'm, but I did feel that same relief you're talking about. When your brother knew that secret was out, mm -hmm. now you felt a relief. And that's the same relief I felt that first time I admitted in front of others. Not my wife, not my kids, in front of people that I didn't know I'm an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. I think it's time to take a break, if I'm correct, and we'll be back in a couple minutes. Hey, I'm Jack Kropp, and this is Sharing Recovery Radio. The number to call in with questions is 570-883-0098. If you want to talk to me personally, 570-881-5825. If you want to talk to me, please wait until after 3 o'clock. So today we're talking to Nadine. We're talking to a young woman who's a professional who is now in recovery, uh, just just a few little few months over two years and she's doing great the point is that there is a stigma to addiction and we got to break that stigma and we want people to to stand up and say yeah my wife my son my grandmother whoever it is has a problem and and there is help for that and and how do we break that stigma well i don't know i don't have the answer to that but i know how i can help and i can help break that stigma by sharing this message about sharing the message of recovery and, and we're really grateful for all the wonderful guests we've had on this show because the the whole point here is um that we can break this stigma of addiction as a family, as a recovery family, not here in Wyoming Valley, not here in the United States, nationwide, worldwide. We have to work together to break the stigma of addiction. And, you know, uh, Tony Luke Jr. really opened my eyes to this, and, and, and I appreciate everything he does, and I appreciate his efforts in, in 
breaking the stigma of addiction. So, okay, we're back with Nadine now. And Nadine, just before the break, you said that you felt a relief when you finally admitted to your brother that you had an issue. And um, how did your brother react? Um, well, you know, initially I had told him... Uh, I, I, well, first of all, did you tell him the truth? Yes, I did. Okay. I did admit to it. Because, yes. you know, we are liars. Yeah, yeah. We, <laughs> when we're using. <laughs> yeah. We try, we try not to be liars today. Um, right. Yeah, I did admit to him. Um, my brother, you know, I adore him. And, it, yeah, it was time. It was time. And I knew I wanted help. I just didn't know how, go, how to go about getting help. I had no idea. Um, you know, my mother, my father, they've never drank before. And so this was all new to us and the family. You're making a good point. And that's one of the things we like to address on this show is people don't know where to turn. Mm -hmm. You know, people see an 800 number on TV and, and maybe that's all they've ever heard of. That's the only way you get help is by calling that 800 number. And that's not the case. There is help right here in our community for anyone that's listening, anybody that's struggling. There's help right here in this community. How do you find it? You can call me. I mean, there's a lot of ways to find help, but if you don't know they exist, and you didn't, right, Nadine? You no. didn't know where to turn for help. No, I didn't. And um, at that time, you know, we seeked out, my brother had helped me. Um, we found an addiction counselor in Allentown, and it was considered outpatient ther um, therapy treatment. But an outpatient is different than inpatient because in an inpatient program, it's residential. You go and stay there for some period of time, which we'll get to in this story. Mm -hmm. But you started in an outpatient program, which means you go there, but you keep living your life. You keep going to work. You keep doing what whatever you're supposed to be doing, right? Right, right. And, you know, I I did. And it was just an hour-long um, therapy session, and it didn't work for me. I, I tried. And okay, so when you went to this outpatient program, did you stop using? No, but I what I did do was, like, I schedule my appointments early, like 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock in the morning. So then technically, you know, back then, that was to me, that wasn't lying. So if he asked me, do you use today, I could say no. But then right after I'd leave, I'd go and use. So it didn't work for me. Right. And that's, you know, treatment today, and especially with an opiate addiction, has to be managed. You have to be detoxed. You have to go into a, into a program where you can be detoxed, you can be removed from the drugs and stabilized before you can just walk into an outpatient program. I mean, I, I, there are outpatient programs are a critical component to recovery, but they're the second phase of recovery. So the first phase of recovery has to be detox and stabilization. But you went into this outpatient program and it, and it didn't work. So you kept using Nadine? Yes, I, I tried everything um, for myself to stop using. You know, I really did want to stop. And growing up, you know, I was Little Miss Independent. I, you know, wanted to do everything on my own. So the fact that I could not stop using on my own, it drove me nuts. Um, you know, I did everything from rationing, substituting. I, I really thought I'd, I'd figure it out on my own. But um, 
but I couldn't. And I was, I did that. I continued to use for about seven or eight more months um, before I finally surrendered and decided to check into a, an actual inpatient rehab facility. All right. So you were going to this outpatient program mm -hmm. and using. Mm -hmm. Did the using slow down? Did it get worse? I mean, because in my mind, if I was going to an outpatient program, I would say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm treating this so I can do more because now I'm going to this treatment. Yeah, actually, it did. It did escalate. It progressed. Over those, those eight months, it got a lot worse. Right. Um, and I was afraid you were going to say that. Yeah, that it really did. And, um, but the one, the one thing that I did get out of that, they did direct me to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. And I did start going to meetings in Allentown, um, but I was still using. So I wasn't able to digest anything or hear anything or absorb anything because I, I was high and I wasn't able to do it. So now this time while well, you're going to this program, you start going to recovery meetings. Are you still working? Are you still are you still functioning at, at a semi-normal level? Um, at that point, I don't know if semi-normal is the right word. It was really it really had its grips in me. Um, I was to the point where the shades were drawn in the house. I really started to uh, seclude myself from the outside world. I really didn't want anybody to see me. My um, self-care habits, you know, simple things like. Like, sh I, I wouldn't shower for a day um, because I would be too sick if I wasn't able to get if I wasn't able to get the pills. But you were able to go to work? Uh, I would do the very bare minimum to just get by at your, work. Your employer didn't have any clue, Nadine? Um, I, think, I think they did at some point. Um, but, you know, I, I checked into rehab and... They, I, you know, they never fired me because of it. I'm grateful for that. Um, but, you know, looking back, I, I believe they probably did know. You know, I, I don't know. All right. So now you're to the point where the outpatient program isn't working. Mm -hmm. You're failing at your career. Mm -hmm. You failed at your relationship. Did you get rid of this dude yet? Yes, I did. All right, you got rid of him. You tossed him out? Yes. Okay, good. Yes. He's not still mooching <laughs> off you is my point. I mean, no. Okay. No. Good. Uh, but now did you go back and tell your family this isn't working? I need, I need like, more help? What about mom and dad? Do they know at this point? Um, so when my brother approached me, you know, it was a big, I admitted it to him, but, you know, basically under, of course, one stipulation is that you don't tell mom or dad, you know. Um, and he said, okay. And there I am. You know, my brother has a wife and three kids. So he's driving down to Allentown to help me try to get help and I'm taking I'm robbing him of his time with his family and his children so he can come I felt like a child um because he because I couldn't take care of myself the addiction had its grips in me and I couldn't I was not able to take I was not well enough to take care of the little things you know taking care of the house the laundry all that stuff I noted starting just it just was non-existent. You had no quality of life no. whatsoever. No. So the addict uses and the whole family suffers. Correct. And it's interesting what you said. You couldn't do the normal things. When when my daughter finally, the second time that, we, that she had to go into treatment, you know, we had to go clean out her apartment. And I, I cried. And I didn't cry 
for me, I cried for her. I cried that the disease of addiction allowed her to live in a situation that I would have never allowed her to live mm-hmm. in. And she didn't do that on purpose. She didn't do that to hurt me or her mother. She did that because she had lost control. And you're telling us that's just where you were, too. Yes. That, that you just no longer have control of anything. All you can think about is, how am I going to get high, right? Mm-hmm. That's it. All right. So then you go to a treatment program. You went to a treatment program in Waverly called Marworth, that, right? Yep. I checked in on June 29th. I was high that day when I checked in. And, uh, you had ju- to get that last load? Uh, get, I had to get the last, last run in. Oh, I had to get it what, in. what, you hoped was the last <laughs> hurrah? You had to get it done that day, Nadine? Yeah. In fact, yeah. I, I scheduled a few days out so I can make sure I had my prescription so I can go through that first before I checked in. You know, it was very strategic, that uh, checking into that inpatient. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you, you checked in the Marworth. Yeah. How long were you there, Nadine? I stayed for 21 days. It was my first inpatient and hopefully my only inpatient um, resident at Marworth, yes. And I checked in. So June 30th, 2016 is my my sober date. Terrific. Now, you spent 21 days there. Mm-hmm. And then at some point they came to you and said, it's time to go home. How scared were you? I remember they gave me my mug for completing the program, which was harder than getting an MBA or my college degree, if I'm going to be honest. I knew the path ahead of me. Um, I knew how much work was going to be invested, which was required of me. Um, I remember getting my mug, closing the door to the front, closing the front door of the rehab, looking at the building and just saying, oh God, help me, help me. Because I was scared. I knew I was safe in the rehab. So, you know, but now I'm back in society. How am I going to do this? I have no idea. You were safe there. I was scared. And now you got to come back to us. Yeah. The world. Yes. We're going to take a break and we're going to talk about the most important part of the story. What happens afterwards? What's recovery like? We'll be right back. This is WYLK, powered by Sherwood Chevrolet Buick GMC, online at SherwoodChevrolet.com. When you're hurt or in trouble, you need a capable, determined, and experienced lawyer on your side. That attorney is Jason Mattioli. Attorney Jason Mattioli is a highly regarded and professional lawyer who understands sometimes good people wind up in trouble. He will defend you to the end and provide you with the guidance you need to get your life back. Attorney Mattioli is located at 700 Vine Street in Scranton. Call 570-961-1616. For over 35 years, Fitness Headquarters in Wilkesbury and Dixon City has been supplying the area with vitamins, supplements, fitness equipment from rehabilitation to athletic performance. A knowledgeable staff on hand can get you on the right path to your recovery with the proper supplements and vitamins. Let the professionals at Fitness Headquarters get you on the path to feeling good and getting healthy. Fitness Headquarters are proud sponsors of Sharing Recovery. Fitness Headquarters, Dixon City and Wilkes-Barre. Get into a healthy you through recovery. Stop suffering from substance abuse. Silver Pines Treatment Center of Mahanoy City believes in providing home-like living conditions in a peaceful and serene setting. Professional staff on hand to help you with this life-changing experience. Get into a healthy you at Silver Pines Treatment Center, 5 White Owl Drive in Mahanoy City. Call them at 855-662-1319 or visit silverpinestreatmentcenter.com. 
not completing high school is more of a social thing than it was an academic thing. I came out in the 11th grade. Nobody was embracing you. The kids were cruel. It was very difficult to be gay. Even though all these years have passed, I still had that longing to have my diploma. The hard part was determining that I was going to do it, but I definitely didn't do it alone. At age 30, with the help of her mentor, Carissa finished her high school diploma. I have a mentor, Maria. She convinced me to continue my education and to finish what I started to get my diploma. She just never judges. She's a true role model. If you're even considering getting your high school diploma, go get it. You can do it. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. The thought of my sons growing up without me inspired me to quit smoking. I talked to my doctors and then I threw away all my cigarettes, ashtrays, and lighters. I started exercising instead of smoking. Staying away from alcohol when I was first quitting was key. I kept on trying. Learned something each time. Do whatever it takes. No matter how many times it takes. We did it. So can you. For free help, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and CDC. Commonly, a D-lineman's responsibility on any given play depends on whether he's playing a zero technique, one-gap, or two-gap technique. They would then attack the A-gap or B-gap in pursuit of the play. Got it? Me neither. But I love this game. On the Penn State Sports Network. Hit the Lion football all season long. Catch every game right here on NEPA's home for Penn State football. WILK News Radio. <laughs> All right, I'm Jack, and this is Sharing Recovery Radio. If you have a question, 570-883-0098. If you want help, call me after the show, 570-881-5825. I forgot my own phone number for a second. And uh, just so uh, the listeners that listen regularly to the show, and I know there's a lot of you out there, and I really do appreciate your listening. Next week is a holiday weekend. We won't be live. We're going to rerun... The first show from this season, which was attorney Lori Besden and her mom, we will rerun that show next week, and we will see you then on September 9th, and the guest will be Matt Bartos from Little Creek Lodge. So, Nadine, just before the break, we, you were walking out the door to go home after completing treatment at Marworth, and now, like everybody that leaves treatment, you're scared to death, right? Yes. And when you left there, they suggested you participate in a program of recovery? Yes, they did. Absolutely. That is the one thing that they, I can't tell you how much they stressed that, yes, and how important it was going to be to my sobriety. All right. And so you went home and then looked around the house and said, I better go to a meeting. Is that, That's... you just walked in without knowing anybody or without? Yes. I, I mean, I was, to tell you, I, I was extremely full of fear to walk into a meeting by myself, um, coming from Allentown, you know, I sold my 
I had to sell my house in Allentown. I just basically put my entire life behind me. And I took a leap of faith. But, you know, I would get out of rehab and I go to, they suggest that I go to this meeting. So I did. And I was so full of fear. But at the same time, it was either that or go back to using. And I put so much work into the last 21 days that I spent at rehab. I was willing to do whatever was suggested to me. So I simply went to the meeting, yes, and um, I introduced myself and I said, I'm new. And that was it. And you were embraced with love, weren't you? Uh, the amount of love was, you know, it was unbelievable. The amount of love, genuine, genuine love. Um, people truly care for my well-being. You know, I was scared and it was probably very obvious that I was new. I'm sure of that. Um, but I was yeah, embraced. To all of us there, it was obvious. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> that, what most new people don't realize is when they walk into a meeting and they're new, they're helping those of us that have been there for a while. Because it reminds us that it's not getting any better on the street. Mm -hmm. it, it's not a good idea to go back to where we came from and start doing what we used to do. So, but I walked into recovery off the street. I did not go to a treatment center. And again, I had no idea what to expect when I walked into that first meeting. And, and I've shared this before. There was a murderer there. There was a drug dealer there that I knew was a big drug kingpin here in the Northeast. There was a woman that had been a prostitute. And I looked around and said, what am I doing here? I don't belong here. I, 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 I'm not one of these people. And what I didn't know is that stigma that I talk about, I actually had, I felt that same stigma that other people feel today about drug addicts and, and alcoholics. I was that... I was that much of a bigot myself because I was judging those people. Mm -hmm. And what I didn't realize is those were the people that were going to save my life. I had no idea that day that those people were saving my life. And that's what we have found in recovery, that the, our arms are open, we welcome everyone, and life starts over. And you don't get your old life back, do you, Nadine? You get a new life in recovery. Uh, I not only get a new life in recovery, I, I feel like my life just started two years ago. Uh, recovery was the best decision of my entire life. Um, you know, I don't regret anything that has happened because it has led me to where I am today. Um, Everybody's road to recovery is their own. Yes. Whatever path it is you take is yours. I'm not going to tell you to do it my way and you aren't going to tell me to do it your way. How is life today, Nadine? Life today is unbelievable. Um, I can tell you I'm doing things that I never thought I would ever do, like be on a radio show. <laughs> I never thought I'd be on one either. So. I, you know, I've embraced recovery. I realized that um, recovery for me is the only way to live. I'm able to go through life with just an open heart feelings, um, you know, it, my worst day in recovery is still better than my days out there using. I was so broken, despair. I was just uh, completely mentally, spiritually sick. And I didn't want to feel like that anymore. I was hopeless. I felt hopeless. And being in recovery has not only given me the hope back, but 
I'm able to live my best life today. And I'm so proud to say that I'm in recovery because it's the hardest thing I've ever had to accept. But when I was able to fully let go and surrender and take the help that I needed and accept the help that I needed um, is really when my life started getting better. And there, there are so many people that are using that that are so sick but they don't know where to turn and they're so afraid and you said that word which is uh, is a big part of recovery for me you know uh, fear there, there's only fear in love mm-hmm. and and Peter Amato told me that about four weeks or three weeks after I quit drinking. I went to talk to Peter Amato, and Peter Amato said to me, the only thing you need to know is there's only fear in love. And he walked away. I haven't talked to him again. That was 20 years ago. And I, he, as he walked away, I said to myself, what a nut. And what is, as it turns out, that's all there is. There's only fear in love. And a person that's listening to this radio show that's afraid to go into recovery, that's afraid to stop using, needs to know that, when you get beyond that fear, that's all there is, is love. That truly, there are people in recovery from every single walk of life. And they open you with open arms and just say, come on, we're going to help you. And we're going to do for you what you can't do for yourself. We'll love you till you can love yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, again, everybody's road to recovery is different. I came to recovery, and for eight years, all I did was not drink. And last week... Uh, Actually, there was a conf- some confusion last week. There was no guest. I told my own story last week. but So anybody's listening heard this last week. I, the first eight years, all I did was not drink. You, on the other hand, walked through the door of recovery and have embraced it immediately. And having an evening, you're really working at this. I really am. You know, I truly believe that when I was using, that was a full-time job. Um, you know, to, to put on this corporate face face the world and then you know I have this other nightlife that I'm doing um when I came into recovery I was able to strip myself of that mask and being able to accept myself for who I am and truly uh embrace recovery it's allowed me to get to know myself and to love myself and to be able to just live my best life in in every way possible you know um the return on investment you know i said using is a full-time job because it is recovery is a full-time job but the return on investment that i get when i put um some action work into my recovery is just my life is unbelievable all right so there's a, a, a ton of people in this world out there listening that don't believe there's any fun in recovery i mean the first time I walked into a meeting, I said, well, if I don't drink, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? <laughs> Is there any fun in recovery, Nadine? What are some of the things you do? I have more fun in recovery than I did when I was using. I, I got back into the gym. Um, so I'm living a healthier lifestyle again. I bought a bike, you know. Uh, a, I, a bicycle or yeah. a motorcycle? Oh, no, 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 a bicycle. Okay. And, you know, I, I take my nieces. Oh, I'm an amazing aunt today, and I know that. Um, <laughs> and I'm an amazing sister and a daughter, and my entire life has just grown in every aspect for the better of my my life that being in recovery um everything just got better everything and i today i'm addicted to recovery now you said um, you said earlier that 
you went to rehab and they didn't fire you. Do you still have that same job, Nadine? Actually, I don't. Um, after uh, it was 12 months that I was still with that company after rehab and they had some layoffs and I was let go. That was the best thing for me. Um, it was for me, I put so much work into my recovery those first 12 months. That was like the last component that for me that I needed to shut the door on in order to move forward in my recovery, you know, because I was still using at that job. So um, it forced me, you know. And that's the point I wanted you to make, because I remember when you lost that job. Mm -hmm. and, and for those listening that, that haven't figured this out yet, Nadine and I are, are very close friends. So um, when you lost that job, you thought that was the end of the world. And it turned out to be the best thing that happened to you. And that's what recovery is. The best thing that happens to you happens. And you aren't planning it. You don't know it. But God has a plan. Mm -hmm. And if we just allow God to be in charge and we help other people, life keeps getting better and we're literally out of time. Thank you so much for being here, Nadine. This has been a wonderful hour. And again, as I said, next week we'll rerun the Lori Besden and her mom show. If you want to call me when the, when the time runs out, which it probably is already off by now, but 570-881-5825. I'm willing to help anybody that calls me. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you in two weeks, I believe.